This week's Game of Thrones rewatch is sponsored by our friends over at True Car. Because if you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse anybody. All you're really looking for is a price that actually means something. That's why there's True Price from True Car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car that you want, including the fees and the accessories before you even get to the dealership. And a True Car dealer will show you the true price on cars like the one that you want, all from the comfort of your home. How do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car is going to show you what other people paid for the same car that you want. And your certified dealer knows this. So they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. Winter was here, but we're just getting started here talking about Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 4 here on the Game of Thrones post-show recap. And now, here's you guys ready to bounce around Westeros like Sir Pounce. I am Rob Sister here with Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm so excited. The long-anticipated debut of Sir Pounce here. Definitely the highlight of Oathkeeper without question. Yeah, lots of good stuff here in Oathkeeper. And uh, yes, Sir Pounce uh, among the many highlights. Oh, my God. Sir Pounce. Uh, What a proper fellow, Sir Pounce. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that's that is the most anticipated debut here in uh, episode four of season four here of Game of Thrones. Right. I think without question, I think uh, a a very decisive highlight and probably, frankly, the high point of season four thus far. (laughs) Okay, Josh, uh, a lot to get to here today. And of course, uh, the introduction of, uh, you know, all of this nonsense debauchery going on at Craster's Keep these days. Carl, not good to see you. <laughs> All right, we'll have a lot to say about that as well as we uh, get to What is he doing? Drinking Mormont. Have you ever drank wine from your own skull before? I think that there must be some sort of spirit that possesses you at Craster's Keep. Like Craster is some sort of like Dread Pirate Robert type figure that whoever <laughs> whoever is like the <laughs> lord of Craster's Keep just becomes Craster. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because Carl is. And drink yeah. from a skull before. He's just the worst guy. And I mean, I doubt that he was like a great guy before. But yeah, he's just uh, like uh, as as uh, as awful as Craster was. He's just he's terrible. He's so extra about everything. 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 <laughs> I'm the best warrior Jin Ali had ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, everything. Okay, so we'll F them until they're dead. Yeah. You know, <laughs> till they're dead. Awful. Really? That's excessive, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, is that an order? So sounds uh, like it. Okay. Oh yeah, and then the Night King shows up. Oh yeah, that's that's pretty big too. <laughs> <laughs> Seems important. Seems Should, important. Did the show have a misstep and not make Carl the big bad of the series? Carl is the Night King, right? Oh, Carl's going to travel the Night King. Time traveling night can confirmed. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so at all. I think that the, the, the fact that Carl is going to get a, a sword to the face in like what one, two episodes from here seems like a good deal. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, we spent a lot of time with him in this episode, but let's get into everything else uh, going on. And we spend a lot of time here in the East to open up this episode. And uh, we see more reading lessons. Uh, this time it's a gray worm getting some reading lessons from Miss Sanday. And she ends up, uh, this is like the first time I've seen, I think we see these two characters together on screen, the beginning of one of the unquestioned greatest storylines in Game of Thrones history. Oh, you. That's sarcastic. Uh, no, they're fine. Look, Missandei and Grey Worm, it is, it is nice to have, isn't it nice to have something nice on Game of Thrones? Everything is so nasty. People are eating swords. People are getting uh, burned to death. White walkers, they're turning your babies into other white walkers. Every once in a while, just like a, a sweet little romance, I think it's not the worst thing in the world. And it is, it is blooming here with Grey Worm and Missandei. Uh, it will, it will go uh, full bloom in a couple of seasons from this moment. Uh, but this is, as, as you say, I think they've shared the screen together, but maybe, you know, not in any kind of meaningful, you know, extended way until until this moment where Missandei is teaching Grey Worm how to speak English. Uh, and they're talking about their pasts on the Summer Isles. And then there was no before being an Unsullied. And uh, then they're, they're bonding and then Grey Worm has to go to work. He's got a job to do. Okay, Josh, could you rank the reading lessons on Game of Thrones, Grey Worm and Missande or Shireen and Davos? Oh, that's tough. Um, and look, I'm a, uh, certainly a, a proponent of, of, of reading and the importance of reading. But uh, as much as I just that's said, you know, no, no, they're probably bottom ranked in the reading on the reading list. Uh, I don't think that you need to have so much reading on Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was only two episodes that we just had a teaching a character how to read scene. I don't know that the, the, how, how to read scenes really read well <laughs> on, on the yeah. show. It's just, it, we just did this with two other characters. So yeah. that's, that's why I'm a little salty about it. Okay. I so, think so. All right. So Grey Worm leading an uprising and he storms that uh, this is a, a big meeting going on between the slaves of Marine. Yeah, uh, I actually really like this scene. I'd kind of forgotten about it. I, I thought that this was cool to sort of see what the what the politics of um, the slaves of Marine are and like them weighing the pros and cons of everything that could potentially go wrong for them if they rebel against the masters and uh, if Daenerys is really going to be forceful about this, this could go poorly for us. And it's a, it's a cool scene in hindsight, knowing just how poorly it is going to go in Marine ultimately, that this is not going to be uh, like Yunkai and Astapor, where things are, you know, taken care of very easily and swiftly. I mean, we're going to be in Marine for a while. We're going to yeah. be here for, for many moons now. Yeah. And Grey Worm did not advertise any of that. I guess that they really don't tell you that at the start of any revolution. No. Missandei had not taught Grey Worm how to read the tea leaves. No. And so uh, Grey Worm says, hey, look, there's three slaves for every master. If you want it, let's take it. A single day of freedom is where the lifetime of slavery gets everybody 
everybody hyped up and then they take to the streets. That's a that's a great shot of um, like the the three groups of slaves coming from like the two ends of the of the street and then another group coming from the alley and all descending on that one guy. I think uh, that would be the moment in um, Final Fantasy X where you kill the bad guys and overkill appears on the screen when you've just like you've really killed them. Mm-hmm. You overkilled them. You, you did not need three small armies to kill this one man. But there you go. Overkill indeed. Kill the Masters. It did bother me that Kill the Masters is written in English, but everybody there is speaking Valerian. Maybe Grey Worm was practicing. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe he was like, Masande told me to write, you know, my words out. And here is just uh, an opportunity to, to try it out. But it does not take long that Danny and her forces and the slaves have overthrown the masters. They hang a Targaryen flag over the harpy. Then where'd they get that big Targaryen flag from? I don't know. They've just been um sewing it. Uh, yeah, over the last several seasons, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know where they got it from because uh, they've got a bigger group now, right? You know, so who, who knows some who's of the working Yunkai on it. slaves were you know uh, they wanted to do something nice for Danny. They're not slaves anymore, Rob. They're they're free and they are they are team Targaryen and they are proudly wearing the flag of their of their team. They've got all of the Targaryen paraphernalia. They have uh, they've pilfered the store. Yeah, and so everybody is really pumped up. The masters are going down. The slaves are happy. And again, I said at the end of season three that maybe we got to the highest high for Danny when she sort of like uh, carried off in the mosh pit. But I think maybe we do have Danny trading at another record high here at this point, this exact moment. I think in terms of the the gloriousness of the moment, though, I do think that the the original Misa Misa ending is probably a more obvious um, victory just in the way that it... I, I th- yeah, let me take that back because I do think you're right. There is that shot of Danny on the balcony in Meereen uh, at the highest point of the city with a Targaryen flag over the harpy and she's looking out and she has just conquered three cities in a row. But now we're about to go downhill. Right. You know, she's sell, really gonna, she's gonna now. lose the plot. <laughs> sell now, sell now. Yeah. yeah. Injustice is being answered with justice and... Uh, <laughs> Misa. Yeah. 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 So not going to be great. And everybody's pumped up except for Sir Barristan, who is saying, hey, it's been my experience, uh, if I may be so Barristan the Bold here, to say (laughs) that, you know, perhaps it's better to answer injustice with mercy. Maybe your mercy should be greater than your wrath. Yeah, uh, that would be that would be wise words to heed, indeed. Especially considering we know that uh, Daenerys going the path that she's going to go is going to at least indirectly, if not directly, lead to Barristan the Bold being Barristan <laughs> the Old News. So, yeah, but instead, Danny says no. I'm going to answer the injustice with justice. And this is, I think, probably, I would say the first time that we see Danny go full Targaryen here. I mean, it's going to be a little bit of a hint of what's to come in terms of some of the things that Danny will do later on in the series. But I'm not sure if we identified this at the time as being sort of like a little bit of a throwback to the glory days of the Targaryen. 
Right. And glory in quotes, I think. But I, I, you know, there have been moments where certainly, you know, Danny burning the masters in Astapor, that has shades of true Targaryen, but it's a victorious moment because it's a surprise to everybody involved and it wins her a huge army. So nobody's really freaking out about it. But the fact that like she did that and then um, even like when she burned Miri Mazdur once upon a time, like mm. she's had moments like this, but this is the first time that she is um, carrying out a really violent order that one of her most trusted advisors is being like, you should think about that. Right. And so the fact that she's rejecting the advice of Barristan, I think, is is what really signals maybe something is uh, is rotten here. Yeah, and the first time that she's really second-guessed on one of these moves, and, you know, Barristan's seen it all before. He's seen how the Targaryens do their business, and probably for him more than anybody else, uh, probably gives him a little pause here, right? Yeah, I think so. He's like, uh, oh, what have I signed on for? Well, not great. Yeah. <laughs> not okay. great. All right. Meanwhile, Jamie and Braun are battling it out. Jamie seems to have come a long way with his left-handed sword play, but Braun, sneaky Braun, always up to his dirty tricks. He takes Jamie's arm off and then knocks Jamie to the ground. Yeah, just smacks him with it. Smacks him right in the face with his own hand. Mm-hmm. Good move. S- strong move. <laughs> yeah. And so the topic of Tyrion comes up. And so uh, Jamie and Bronn are talking about whether or not he did it. Bronn says, look, poison's not his style. Really, you know, killing is not his style. Why don't you go talk to him? Are you going to fight for him now? He named you his champion back up at the Vale. Yeah, back at the veil. So, so Jamie's going to take Bronn's suggestion to heart, and we're going to have our first uh, Tyrion and Jamie scene in jail. Uh, and it's already like they're going to foreshadow how this is going to go, where Tyrion's like, hey, think you could set me free? Mm-hmm. She was like, you know, I can't do that. So much will change in just six episodes time. Yeah, I did like Jamie talking about this isn't so bad. Look, I was in the Stark jail and I was chained to a post. You've got a pot to go to the bathroom. This is good. And uh, Tyrion it is no consolation to him. No consolation at all. See, come on. You got just secret duck sausage and almonds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Life is all right. And so Jamie is asking Tyrion if you really did it. And also they're getting, dancing around that uh, Cersei wanted uh, Jamie to kill Tyrion. And uh, Tyrion sort of explores it for a moment. Talks about like, uh, what do you think of the name of the Kingslayer Brothers? You like that? The Kingslayer Brothers. Is that like, I don't know, is that going to be some sort of like country band? That's not bad. A, a minstrel band. What could they play? Reigns of Castamere. Yeah, they could play that. Baron the Maiden Fair, although mm-hmm. maybe a little too soon for Jamie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe he could just sing Jamie because I think that the guitar is going to present some problems. That's going to be tough. Uh, maybe he can uh, do some sort of like percussive instrument. Yeah. Uh, ooh, it could be like stomp and like he can use like the sounds his hand makes. Yeah. His like his golden hand. Def Leppard cover band. Oh, that's true. Good call. Yeah. So yeah, there's but, options. There's some, this is a great line where the, uh, Tyrion asks, are you, are you really asking me if I killed your son? And Jamie asks, are you really asking me if I'd kill my brother? And so they're, they're on the same page, these two guys. Uh, Jamie could also get a hand that is like fashioned to hold a guitar pick. Right. And so he could play guitar. He could actually do quite a good job. Like this right hand could just be uh, designed for it. 
Yeah, I'd check it out. Open can Kyburn work on that? I'm sure if Kyburn can literally bring someone back to life, mm-hmm. I assume assume he can work on yeah. something like that. So they end up coming back around to Sansa, and Tyrion says, "No, Sansa didn't do it." And uh, Jamie isn't so sure, but uh, Tyrion says, "Look, Sansa's not a killer, not yet, anyway." What does Tyrion mean by that? Oh, I mean, I think that he he probably sees the capacity in her to become the type of person that she is going to become later on in the show, who is somebody who is willing to, to you know, act against an enemy the way she's going to act against Littlefinger. Like, I, I thought that this was actually fairly clever foreshadowing on the show's part. I, you got to imagine at this point in the series, middle of season four, Game of Thrones is through seven seasons at this point. Like, they have to have, like, a pretty good idea of what they're going to do to Littlefinger, if not, like, the exact specifics of how it's going to play out. So just, I love that transition of Sansa's not a killer, not yet anyway, and then cutting straight to a scene with Sansa and Littlefinger, knowing that she's going to be the one who orders his execution in just a couple of seasons from this point. Uh, so good job on the writing staff in this moment. Yeah. And Sansa and Littlefinger are on the boat and they're talking through what happened to Tyrion. And then this is sort of more of the Jedi training of Sansa that's going on with Littlefinger. And they're talking about who killed Joffrey and Littlefinger, you know, tries to at least tell her that, well, look, I was in the Eerie. Couldn't have been me. So who did it? And so they're talking it through. They rule out Sir Dantos as being anything else uh, but a messenger. And Littlefinger gives us the reveal here that the necklace was the delivery mechanism for the poison. Yeah, so good thing the show isn't dragging it out too far. I know we were a little foggy on the details ourselves, having, uh, you know, not gone through this in a little while. Uh, but this is, you know, this is pretty good confirmation mm-hmm. of his role in things and the necklace's role in things. And then the very next scene, uh, the Queen of Thorns is really gonna, uh, all but completely out herself, uh, in, in the, in the murder plot as well. Uh, so yeah, it's good. Yeah, I just wonder, though, if it's still a little too cute in the way that they do this reveal. Like if somebody was not on the Internet at that time and then would would they be able to explain what happened? Right. So what do they say? Like, yeah, I did it. Yeah, but I, I did it. I'm not it sure. The, and it was the necklace. Yeah, there was poison. I don't know. I don't know. It was Lady Elena compli- did it, was, it too. It was complicated. Like, I, I wonder, you know, and I mean, there's no way to see a scene between Littlefinger and Lady Elena at this point. So I don't know exactly how you do that on the TV show as opposed to uh, in the book. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So we see Littlefinger and Sansa are talking about why. Why did Littlefinger do this? But weren't the Lannisters good friends to you? They gave you wealth and power. And Littlefinger says that power is going to that he keeps uh, your foes confused. That's good. Then they don't know who you are. Yeah. Uh, And the audience is going to be just as confused over the course of the Littlefinger arc as so why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you? You know what? What is going on? Never really going to get much clarity, except for the fact that, he, you know, he says he'd risk he'd risk everything to get what I want. And mm-hmm. what do you want? Everything. Yeah. And like that feels legit. Like that feels like that is that is Littlefinger in a nutshell. Help. He's trapped in a nutshell. However, did he get into a nut like this? <laughs> yeah. And so his friendship with the Lannisters was productive, but uh, he needs friends that are uh, predictable and reasonable, not friends like Littlefinger. Uh, and a uh, thoughtful gift is going to help the friendship grow strong. 
Right. <laughs> Growing stronger. Mm. Uh, another good segue as we get into um, the first of a couple of Marjorie scenes in this episode where she's going to be sitting with uh, with her grandmother who is about to be leaving King's Landing shortly. Uh, she's going to be riding away from King's Landing, but not before she talks about another time she went for a ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So Lady Elena and Marjorie uh, are talking about uh, this whole situation about how she ended up married to Luther instead of some Targaryen ferret faced looking guy. <laughs> Do we know anybody that fits that description? Sir Ferret of House Targaryen. Um, I don't know. That's the that's the dragon we never discuss. Mm-hmm. Now, is that Maester Aemon? Oh, that's sad if so. Right? Because isn't that, don't they both talk about this? Uh, yeah. yeah. Right? Or yeah, is it a different Targaryen? No, that, 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 make, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's sad. That's sad. <laughs> My <laughs> ferret face. That's not a nice thing to say about Maester Aemon. He's one of the good guys. Yeah. What did Lady Olenna do to Luther that he couldn't walk? I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. And then what did Luther do? He like told her sister like, hey, uh, sorry, I have to yeah. go for Lady Elena. Yeah, something very kinky happened. And mm-hmm. uh, to speculate on the details would be ungentlemanly of us. Yes. OK, so she says, OK, look, you did a good job with Joffrey. Uh, you Tommen uh, should be no problem for you. But you have to get to him before Cersei does. Right, because Cersei's distracted right now. She's grieving. This is your time to to really make the move on Tommen. And um, somewhere over the course of this, she kind of like insinuates that uh, like I didn't I, like I didn't kill that kid for nothing. Like you got to make this work. And she's like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Marjorie's very kind of caught off guard. And Elena says, you don't think I'd let you marry that beast, do you? And she's like saying all of this as she's fiddling with Marjorie's necklace. So if your if your brain can connect the gesture of the necklace mm-hmm. to the fact that Littlefinger has just said that there is a poison thing in the necklace, like now the work is being done for you, and you know the Queen of Thorns is responsible for Joffrey's death. You knew it. You knew it. Okay. So knew it. <laughs> we see uh, Jon Snow is giving some uh, lessons to the good men of the Night's Watch about how to fight the wildlings. There's not a ton going on here in this scene other than, um, you know, John and, and the gang are getting ready in case they need to fight the wildlings. We know, of course, that they are going to be in a big fight with them by the end of the season. And they're going to be in this big fight with Craster's, uh, the mutineers at Craster's in a couple of episodes, or I think really just one episode from now. Um, a couple of things that, that I enjoyed, like everyone's so sweet to Ollie. Little do they know. Uh, Jano Slint is going to be trying to tell Alistair thorn that like these people love Jon Snow they're not big fans of yours you should really get in front of that otherwise uh, you know you're going to be taking orders from Jon Snow for the rest of your life that ends up being fairly prescient mm-hmm. <laughs> yes yes that uh, lots of foreshadowing going on here at the Night's Watch and uh, we also see that uh, somebody has infiltrated the Night's Watch Josh Ock. 
Yes. His name's Locke. Yeah, Locke has showed up here uh, on orders from Ramsey. And you said before, like, isn't it such a shame that Carl was not made into like a big bad guy of the show? I got to say, like, Locke, like, you're very good at your job. I got to give Locke some credit here. He's like very, very convincingly selling the, the, oh, I just, you know, I was just trying to find a partridge for my hungry kids and I got caught. It sucks. And I was like, oh, man, that's sounds terrible mm-hmm. uh, and like you could you get the sense that john and locker are going to be big time bros here john uh, but it, i know john Locke. it even has like a, a, a the portmanteau it writes itself mm-hmm. uh but Locke is uh it's all a lie he is team ramsey all the way and now doesn't it make sense so uh you know why ramsey and Locke were were such bros mm-hmm. uh these guys are in lockstep with one another yes now doesn't it seem like it's very easy to infiltrate the Night's Watch? I mean, we are expecting this, you know, a uh, huge plot from Mance Raider. Like, uh, is it just inconceivable that they could send a wildling to go join the Night's Watch and say, like, hey, I'm ready to join the Night's Watch. Like, come on in, brother. It would have to be a wildling who has spent a lot of time south of the wall because I think, I mean, you see it in Molestown, right? In the episode before this one, when they brought Gilly there and Gilly is talking to like one person who is like, you're a wildling, aren't you? Like they can sniff mm-hmm. it out very, very quickly. So I feel like a wildling would get uh, sniffed out very quickly on, on the, on the wall here. Um, but in terms of like Locke being able to infiltrate it, Dude's just a great actor. Give I him the Emmy so. now. <laughs> give him the give him the Throner. Yeah, <laughs> retro retroactive Throner. <laughs> I think we had Throner season four. Oh, we did. We did. That's why I'm saying <laughs> let's go back one. in time and make sure that he gets one. Yeah. Yep. Um, so uh, Sir Alistair Thorne reminds John, "Hey, you're Stewart. Go back and empty the pots, buddy." Yeah, and John's like, "No, no." He wants him to fight him. He wants him. He wants, because he, he wants to, you know, Mormont's not here anymore. John's got nobody in charge who's, who's going to be in his corner. He wants him to, to take a swing. Okay. So Cersei ends up, uh, hearing some knocking at her door and it's Jamie and he's very formal, much more formal than their last meeting. And he mm. says, uh, you sent for me, your grace. And she is basically giving him some sort of a loyalty test in terms of like, who are you more loyal to me or Kat Stark? Right. And Kat Stark's dead. I'm not loyal to her at all. I mean, he's being fairly but... honest in this scene. Yeah. You know, he's he, I think he's being fairly honest about like what his circumstances were and what he was thinking. And it, she's like, if I told you to go out and find Sansa and cut off her head, would you do it? And he doesn't say anything. So that really indicates that like Jamie's in a different place than where Cersei is. Right Jamie's now. a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> Where's this episode like sure him, wants right? this we're episode sure wants you to think so like him right this episode really wants you to like uh, jamie I'm lannister so i know oh my god like i'm i'm about to start saying hodor because i feel like my brain is being mm. fried uh but like i mean i was thinking that watching like there's a bunch of jamie scenes we haven't even gotten into like the most heroic jamie lannister territory of the episode yet but man game of thrones Really wants you to just love Jamie Lannister in this episode. <laughs> he didn't do anything yeah. wrong. If you skip last week's episode, then it, it's <laughs> all <Jamie's> made sense. 
<laughs> oh god awful it's so awful <laughs> it's so, so stupid okay. so stupid it's interesting that cersei orders there to be four men at tommen's door day at night in the very next scene we see marjorie has snuck into tommen's room uh he thinks it's sir pounce jumping around but it's marjorie Sir Pounce? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just one of my favorite line deliveries of the whole season. Uh, yeah, Marjorie is just, that's how good she is. She can sneak past multiple members of the King's Guard. And she's like, hey, we're, you know, we're going to be husband and wife is what I hear. We got to have some secrets. So let's talk. Let's have some secrets. Secret time. And I think we said it at the time. Uh, certainly I think it is, it is, uh, it, it bears out here. These are, these are the, the best days of King Tommen's little life. Uh, like the, the secret night rendezvous with Marjorie. This is, this is the, this is the stuff. Yeah. And Marjorie is at the height of her powers. Yes. This is a very, very powerful Marjorie scene where she is, uh, she is able to really wrap this young little man around her finger. She's, all in on Sir Pounce. Uh, <laughs> tells, even in, in death, Joffrey's the worst. Uh, Tommen talks about how Joffrey didn't like Sir Pounce. He threatened to skin him alive and mix his innards up in my food. So I didn't know I was eating him. And like, that is so specific mm-hmm. <laughs> and just so in character for Joffrey. Yeah. And Marjorie did not like that either. She says that's very cruel. She doesn't like cruel. And uh, she's really, uh, I think she really puts herself out there in terms of like, uh, this was a huge gamble. Because if Tommen says something to Cersei, Cersei would have her head by the end of the day. For sure. Uh, Certainly. Uh, She's got life in her hands with uh, that Tommen is going to keep a secret. She's got to take the risk. You got to risk it to get the Iron Throne. Isn't that the saying? I guess so. Yes, she's willing to risk everything to get what she wants. So that's what she's doing here. And she, you know, she calls her shot. She believes in herself. You got to believe in yourself is what I've heard. And she uh, she is able to to convince Tom and to, to keep this little secret. And he seems very, very happy. Mm-hmm. He's so excited for their wedding when they say their vows in front of the high septon. And then there's a feast and that's all that happens. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be coming up Tom and pretty soon. OK, <laughs> not too soon. No. Uh, so we see Jamie and Brienne and of course uh, we had the sword that was forged in the premiere here of season four and it was given to Jamie and it was made up from Ned Stark's Valyrian steel sword ice and Jamie is going to give it to Brienne it's made from Ned Stark's sword you can use it to defend Ned Stark's daughter Wow, good guy Jamie. Just handing out presents left and right. He's got the sword for Brienne. He has some armor made up for her. Says, I hope I got your measurements right. And it's kind of like, oh, how'd you get those, Jamie? Um, and then he gives her, he hands over Podrick, too. And Podrick seems so thrilled to be part of this crew. Mm-hmm. He's very happy about this new assignment. Yeah. And we also see her get a suit of armor. Now, Josh, do you feel like that in what we've seen so far through seven seasons, that does Brienne use her sword effectively to the benefit of uh, of Sansa or Arya? Well, she's going to save Sansa's life um, in the at the start of season seven, yeah, pretty early from, on. Uh, when the hounds are. Not yeah, the yeah, hound, yeah. But uh, yeah. Ramsey's dogs are about to uh, attack. So I, I guess so. I guess this did pay off. 
I think so. Or is it the start of season six at this point? I think it's the start of season six. Yeah. yeah. So Brienne, Brienne is gonna, you know, she's gonna, she's gonna really biff it when it comes to to Arya, uh, but she is going to be able to save Sansa, and in both cases, so she saves Sansa, and she's gonna use that sword. She's gonna use that sword to save Sansa, and she's gonna use that sword in a sparring practice with Arya, if I'm remembering correct. Mm-hmm. So. These swords will meet the Starks. Okay, so the the Stark Valyrian steel is still in play. It's still in play. Okay. Still in the family. All right. And uh, also, one more gift for Brienne of Tarth. Uh, <laughs> Podrick Payne. And he's going to get Tyrion's axe. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Podrick gets Tyrion's axe. He gets uh, the the very awkward introduction to Brienne where he calls her sir and then calls her my lady. And she doesn't seem to like either one of those. So Podrick and Brienne's uh, friendship off to off to a, a, a rocky start. And of course, as we know, on Game of Thrones, the best swords have names, Josh. And Brienne's sword should be no different. It should be called Oathkeeper. Yeah, already really setting up uh, rather effectively uh, the the dim- the the you know dynamic between um, Brienne and the Hound. You know, Brienne is all about naming swords. We know how the Hound feels about such practice. <laughs> yes, he doesn't care for it. Not a fan. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, see you later, Brienne and Pod, and they ride off until we see them next. Uh, let's check in with John and Sam, and uh, they're talking about how Gilly has gone to Molestown, and Sam is going to reveal to John about how he saw uh, Bran Stark. Right. I like how Sam is regretting taking Gilly away from the Night's Watch so swiftly. It's like he listened to our podcast. Like, oh, the guys were right. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? They were so right. I should have listened to the Snow-It-Alls. Oh, I blew it. Uh, I blew it. Uh, yeah, and so well, we find out that that Sam had already told John about uh, Bran. Like they just yara yara through that. That happened off screen, and uh, John is kind of just wondering. Oh, I, I wonder if Bran is at Craster's. And like, wow, that's mm-hmm. actually uh, that's that's a pretty uh, on the nose uh, <laughs> prediction. Yes. And Locke happens to be listening in as John is openly wondering about that, and Locke's like, oh, that seems like the place that I should go. Yeah, they sort of rule out that every other wildling village is going to be abandoned. But isn't that the perfect place to go, an abandoned wildling village? I think that that seems like a a fine place to go. (laughs) I don't know. It's like, or they could go to Craster's Keep because that has all the mutineers. Well, I think that, you know, Bran doesn't know. Bran doesn't know where where to go. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we see uh, Sir Alistair that, uh, that he is going to tell Jon Snow as he eats a delicious chicken dinner. You can, Looks good, yeah. You can go to Craster's Keep, but you can only take volunteers with you. And another misstep for Alistair Thorne because John says like, okay, cool. And he gives like an immediate, like, you know, turns around the Jerry Maguire speech, except this time more than just Flipper will be coming with him and Dorothy right. Boyd and Dorothy Boyd's defense as well. Right. Uh, it's going to be more than moment here for John. Yeah. Snow. Yeah. First of, first of a few, uh, of, of John really being the undeclared leader of the night's watch. Yes. And so John says, you know, who's coming with me? We're going to Craster's. <laughs> and so a bunch of people, say that they are going to go, including Locke. And the music turns very ominous when Locke says he's going to. 
major plot development. That music cue should really clue you into the fact that Locke is going to be important and everything that is going to come from him tagging along for this trip is going to be earth-shatteringly crucial. Yeah, Gren is going, Ed is going, a bunch of red shirts, and Locke. Yeah, that's the that's the crew. That's the wrecking crew. <laughs> Are you ready, Josh, to talk about <laughs> Carl Tanner from Gin Alley? <laughs> Drinking wine from the skull of J.R. Bleeping Mormont. <laughs> That's literally the line. The line is, as we cut to Craster's Keith. Look at me. They said I could never drink a wine out of G.R. Mormont's skull. Uh, I believe we said, why did you want to drink wine out of G.R. Mormont's skull? It's not even a good cut. He's like licking the skull. Yeah, he's spilling that all over the place. But the hygiene on these people, the manners, like... How hard is it to get some freaking wine in your stupid face hole, Carl? (laughs) Yeah. And he also is very into roasting Rast. It's somehow like Rast is being bullied by Carl. The Rast roast is in full effect. Uh, I don't want to repeat what he tells Rast that he looks like. (laughs) (laughs) He says to him, for anybody who has not been keeping up with the episode, he's like, you look like a ball sack. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah, Carl, you're so right that uh, the like the spirit of Craster is just coursing through his veins. I haven't lost a fight since I was nine. (laughs) (laughs) Since I was nine years old. Effing legend in Gin Alley. Why are we talking about Gin Alley so much? Well, we've talked about Gin Alley before, right? Wasn't that what Davos and uh, Gendry were bonding over? It's a good thing that they didn't have to re-encounter Carl because they'd be like, oh, this guy. Yep. Yep. Carl Tanner from (laughs) Flipping Gin Alley. (laughs) Yeah. And so, okay, Craster's last baby boy comes in and, okay, what do we have to do? And all of the women just start chanting gift from the gods. I don't know. Did Craster make them chant that when they would come? Maybe that, like, they they had to get in on it. He he had to get, like, somebody in or they would, like, really be very upset every time that the boy baby would be taken away. I think they still have like that Stockholm PTSD potentially here. Yeah. They just don't know any better. This is the custom. You know, this is all they know in their yeah. lives. And Carl Tanner from Ginali is trying to figure out like, okay, boy, baby, what do we do? I gotta, I gotta kill it. All right. I guess I gotta do what I gotta do. Right. And then, uh, he then says, then they said, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a gift for the gods. He's like, all right. If it works for them, give the walkers. Well, like all of a sudden, Carl Tanner is very reasonable. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. He's drunk as well. So like whoever has like the last good ideas, the idea he'll listen to makes sense. I don't, how did we go from F them till they're dead? To <laughs> give the gods what they want. I don't care. Take the stupid baby. Get out of here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That makes it really doesn't track very much. Okay, so Carl. rest. Uh, he's headed that way. Why don't you go uh, put the baby in the snow? And so he does, and like he leaves it a little bit of a blanket, and that's, I guess, kind of Rast. And then Rast, whatever goodwill he just shored up with that, which is not much to speak <laughs> of. Leaving a baby out in the snow to die? <laughs> At least they gave him a blanket, you know. 
They gave him gave him something. Uh, it's not it's not a lot. Rast goes and then he starts like taunting Ghost. Right, which I've never seen anybody taunt a dog like this of like taking a canteen of water and then like pouring it out in front of the dog. Like, does the dog know about the canteen? These dire wolves are very smart. They're yeah. very intuitive. Yeah. Um, Rast who uh, we had mentioned many, many, many moons ago yes. uh, when we were talking about season one. Piggy. About that, yeah, that scene where Rast is, you know, being terrible to Sam, and then they, uh, you know, John and his buddies are terrible to Rast by threatening him with Ghost, and if you're terrible, we're going to have Ghost eat you alive, and here is Rast once again uh, being awful, this time getting one over on Ghost, and we're so close. Mm-hmm. We're so close to that yeah. sweet, sweet vengeance. This makes me kind of like Carl Tanner from Janali, though, that he's so mean to Rast. Yeah, Rast is like the anti Sam, <laughs> where like this is the member of the Night's Watch that you really want to make fun of. Like, it is okay to call Rast a ball sack. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, who's checking out what's going on at Craster's Keep? Uh, it looks like that Hodor and Bran, they hear the baby crying, and Bran is going to send Summer to go peer and see what's going on and summer sees ghost locked up but oh no he's in a rast trap he got caught in the rast trap what he slipped on the ice is that what happened the the rast nest (laughs) yeah i think that's what it is like maybe rast has like some secret uh foresight where he's like if i spill this water out it's gonna freeze and turn into the uh the the beyond the wall equivalent of a banana peel and really just trip up whoever's coming here next yeah and so we have to go rescue Summer. So the whole crew is going to go down to Craster's and somehow they think that they're being real slick and the like the four of them are just like peering out from the bushes of like, OK, what do we do? Okay, we'll go in there. We gotta go. We gotta go get. We gotta get summer. We gotta get ghosts. And then like just immediately they're like surrounded. I appreciated that. You know, it, it, it is one of those things. It's one of those. Uh, you see this in in movies and in TV shows all the time. Of like everyone's just like hiding behind the crate, and the bad guy <laughs> is literally like five feet away, but they are talking at full volume and they are totally fine. And so for like you know this crew especially, not the subtlest crew, probably have to make a lot of noise to get Bran here. Uh, Hodor is not exactly a subtle guy, so I I was pleased that these guys just got like knocked immediately like that that makes total sense just in a realistic way they've got hodor chained up and they've sort of just like taunting hodor and pulling uh, him around by a chain so inside we have bran and mira and jojen reed and they are being tormented by carl yeah carl is awful and he says something very very weird which thing Uh, mira's curly hair yeah, it's like, oh, look at those beautiful brown curls. My, My mom. <laughs> brown, beautiful brown curls like this. Like, uh-oh, yeah, uh-oh. yeah, yeah. But I, I think once again, just re- reinforcing your theory that the spirit of Craster is coursing through mm. Carl. Like that seems in character. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Craster's Keep is like Hall. I think that just uh, you go mad with uh, the Craster brain when as soon as you take over that place. Brown, curly Hall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bran gets slapped around by Carl Tanner. This is an episode where people are just getting smacked in the face <laughs> left and right. Yeah. 
And he's saying, like, isn't this weird that you guys are walking around the woods up here? Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's right. He's not wrong. And so we see that uh, Jojen Reed, he ends up having uh, a seizure. Mira Reed, that uh, he has a knife up to her throat, that she's not a valuable hostage. But then ultimately, that uh, once Jojen ends up having the seizure, she attends to him. And uh, Bran blurts out that, I'm Brandon Stark. Yeah. And uh, I guess Carl just doesn't keep up with current events. Like he doesn't know that like Bran Stark had uh, the incident at Winterfell. He hasn't connected this on his own, uh, but he's he's compelled. This is entertaining. <laughs> that he thought it was going to be another boring day here yeah. at Craster's Keep. Yeah. Carl Tanner has like uh, some like sitcom line here where he says, and here I thought it was going to be just another boring day. Wah, wah. Yeah, all we were missing was him putting on the sunglasses and the CSI Miami music starting to play. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> okay. Finally, in our final scene, a scene that launched a book club. Once yes. upon a time, uh, we see a white walker come over and pick up the little baby. And somehow this little baby has uh, survived the long march north to the Night King, where uh, somehow this baby has not died of hypothermia and is now uh, will become one of the White Walkers. Yeah, and we will see the Night King will will show up and the Night King will be the Night King will be the one who transforms this baby into a White Walker and through seven seasons we don't know exactly like what that means and why that's happening other than, you know, bolstering their ranks but is there a deeper significance to it? Regardless, it is just insane and it was insane at the time and it's still pretty crazy to go to to the Night King's house, you know to go to the White Walker HQ uh, and not the app that you win money on. It is just, it was it was very exciting at the time to see this because this was not something that, that had been in the book uh, at that point and still at this point because they have not advanced. Um, it was just, it was an awesome, awesome moment. I remember my jaw just being on the ground, my face being thoroughly melted off uh, and still a really cool sequence. I think looking back at this episode, just having talked it through, it is maybe not the most single most exciting episode of the show, but this one sequence, this one moment mm. still pretty killer. Yeah, I mean, the Marine stuff eats up a lot at the beginning of the episode, and Carl Tanner from Gin Alley eats up a good uh, 10, 15 minutes at the end of the episode. Uh, so it's sort of like, uh, you know, these really two long sequences uh, sandwiched around uh, a bunch of other stuff going on in King's Landing. Yeah, and like a lot of the Jamie Lannister stuff, which is like really all good guy Jamie all the time, and like that mm-hmm. is just like, it just timing confusing. is confusing. So I think, the, you know, pretty easily the the, the weakest episode of season four so far but that final scene is just uh is is really really amazing and coming at an interesting time rob as we are uh you know we're we're dealing with um you know we're podcasting about this episode uh in mid-june 2018 just a few days after we've gotten the announcement of hbo officially green lighting a pilot for their first of potentially a few game of thrones prequels oh Uh, uh, yes i heard about this one it's called gin alley right it's called gin alley and it is the nine-year-old carl tanner and it is all yeah every single man 
Yes, it begins with the first time he loses a fight. And then, you know, spoiler alert for the rest of the series, he never loses again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Have they cast his mom with beautiful curly hair yet? Uh, not that I am aware of. So we still have time to, to make that, make that call. Maybe like, uh, I don't know, Carrie Russell just finished the Americans iconic curly hair. That Mm -hmm. could be good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, uh, no word on nine year old Carl Tanner, right? Not yet. No. Uh, the, the, uh, the young Sheldon actor is going to be playing. No, uh, it, young it sounds Carl. really good because they're going to have young Davos also there on Ginali. So uh, <laughs> a lot of a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, it'll be a great show. No, no, they're doing a show that takes place like thousands and thousands of years before Game of Thrones. Almost certainly is going to be dealing with the original White Walker war and like the White Walker origin and how all of that is going to play out. Um, so that's very exciting. Uh, and, and just it, I thought it was pretty funny that that was happening on the same week that we're seeing the Night King for the first time. And that is probably the only character uh, of the current era of Game of Thrones that we would see again on uh, on that show like young night king uh no maybe leaf maybe leaf young leaf not uh the three-eyed raven i don't know that max von sidow is going to be hanging around (laughs) so like i just don't think that he's going to be showing up not time traveling brand stark (laughs) maybe (laughs) oh god uh i'm not exactly excited at that prospect but (laughs) What are you going to do? <laughs> All right. So uh, anyway, but fun stuff to go over here. Oathkeeper as uh, after next week, we will be halfway through season four, Josh. Yeah, man. Uh, we're, we're barreling through, just trucking through. And, you know, we've got a we got a long summer to keep going through it all. So uh, not slowing down, not slowing down at all. OK, what's coming up in episode five from season four, Josh? first of his name yeah we're gonna get into the battle with uh everybody at craster's keep so uh enjoy your craster through carl impression just keep now (laughs) new gin alley (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great yeah so that's what's happening. Okay. That's what's happening next week. Uh, some more stuff with uh, with the Hound, Denaria, and Littlefinger is going to continue to be a weirdo. Uh, I think is next is the next episode going to be when uh, when Lysa and Littlefinger are going to have like their very loud wedding night. <laughs> well, tune in next week to find <laughs> I th- out. I think that might be it. Okay, that's <laughs> that's happening. That's happening. Uh, as well. okay. All right, no good. No so, good. Uh, fun stuff this week, of course. Uh, check out, uh, if you missed our Fear the Walking Dead mid-season finale coverage, Josh Wiggler and I were back together talking about some Walking Dead over on Post Show Recaps. Plus, Josh Wiggler has... Uh, everybody's raving about Westworld this week. Find out what Josh Wiggler and Joe Garfine had to say on our Westworld podcast as well on Post Show Recaps, Josh. Yeah, man. Liked that episode quite a bit. Very happy about that. So excited for you guys to hear what we had to say. Okay. All right. We're going to go off and drink coffee out of Gior Mormont's skull (laughs) after this. So everybody have a good one. Take care. Bye.